So we were here last week, and you're back. I'm surprised. <laughs> you either A, felt like you tried to drink from Niagara Falls, like, ah, or B, you're like, Matt, you're a sellout. How can you believe that? What happened to all this stuff that I've believed about prophecy? But I'm glad you're back. So here's what I want to do today. I hinted at it at the end of last week. I think there is a purpose in prophetic, apocalyptic literature, whatever you want to call it, we read in Mark 13, Matthew 24, book of Revelation, all those things, they've got a purpose. And Jesus is our good shepherd. And I think you can look at any one of those texts and see in them Jesus shepherding his people, okay? And we're gonna look at Mark 13 through the lens of Jesus being a good shepherd and shepherding his disciples through coming difficulty. And I don't care what age you've lived in for the last 2,000 years, trouble has come for believers. And we all need to be directed. So I'm gonna recap, if you're new, here's what's happened. Because to understand scripture, you always have to put it in context. Jesus has presented himself as king to Israel. He's come in the way Zechariah prophesied would happen. He's so distraught over his rejection that Dr. Luke, in his recounting of that same presentation of the king, says that Jesus went on a mountain, looked over Jerusalem, and wept and said this, you should have known that this was your day of visitation. Why would he say that? Because Daniel, 500 years before, in Daniel chapter nine, had prophesied the day Messiah would walk in to Jerusalem, and it was Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus walked in. And he weeps, you should have known that this was your day. So Jesus presents himself as king. He comes in and says, not only I king, I'm God. And he remodels the temple and says, listen, you've turned the place that should be prayer for all nations into a den of thieves. And so then he gets interrogated, question after question after question, answers them brilliantly. It's his confirmation hearing. And then Jesus says, you've had your turn. Let me ask you a question. And we looked at that on a Sunday where Jesus uses a psalm to prove that he is God. And then we get Mark chapter 13. Tribulations, hardship, difficulty. Here's the reason why. If you're rejecting the prince of peace, if you're rejecting the new kingdom that comes, not like the old kingdoms, a kingdom where you love your enemies, a kingdom where you pray for those that persecute you. If you're rejecting that kingdom, what's the kingdom that you get? War, destruction, chaos. So they said no to Jesus, okay. So then Jesus, Mark chapter 13, this is what you're getting instead. Hard times, difficulty, right? So I went through how I see Mark 13. I know a lot of people look at Bible prophecy differently than I do. I'm okay with that, right? There's a bunch of ways. If you know what you're doing, that's fine. 
But there's people that are hack jobs and they look at Bible prophecy like this. They have two goals. Number one, try to find America in prophecy. We don't, we're not in here, sorry. And then number two, try to figure out who the Antichrist is. And who's always the Antichrist? The president, right? Joe Biden's the Antichrist. It's so offensive to the Antichrist. He's like, what? I'm so much worse than that. You think inflation is bad? Wait till I show up, right? <laughs> so just like, are you kidding? So there's all that kind of stuff that I'm like, ugh. So to me, in Mark 13, what you see is Jesus saying over and over, you. Who's he talking to? His 12 disciples. You, you, you. He's gonna comfort and he's going to pastor them through really difficult circumstances because the power structure, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the Pharisees, the scribes had rejected Jesus. And because of that rejection, they were gonna suffer. Well, that seems unfair, Matt. The believers were the disciples and they're gonna suffer? Oh yeah, but they didn't do anything wrong, right. Other people's decisions can lead to your suffering. Do you know that? Right? Do other people's decisions affect your life? Absolutely. 2020 election. I don't know how you voted, but a, uh, a minority of our population, about 80 million, decided who was going to be president. Has that affected your life? Yeah. Go to the gas station. It affected your life, right? In Oregon, a minority of the population of Oregon that voted, they were the majority that voted, but a minority of the population legalized marijuana. Has that affected your life in Southern Oregon? Oh, most definitely, right? Your spouse makes decisions. Do they affect your life? Oh, absolutely. Right? At your job, maybe your company was sold and maybe there's new management in there. Did that affect you? Yes, Matt. I think my job is the great tribulation and my new boss is the Antichrist, Right? <laughs> Totally, that's the way life works. So Jesus says, their decision to reject me, it's gonna have these ramifications on you guys, but I want to help you. I'm gonna pastor you through these times. So when you're walking through valleys and you're walking through shadows and you're having difficulty, you need guidance. That's prophetic literature. It guides us through tribulation. I don't think it's there like Revelation 9 to figure out if the scorpions are Sikorsky helicopters. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But I don't think that's gonna help you through tribulation. What's gonna help you through tribulation? Well, it's the wisdom that's intertwined through this entire section where Jesus like will say, hey, some bad stuff is coming, but he'll give this little pastoral thing that helps us. And I hinted at it at the last end of last week. So now we're gonna go through them, kind of look, Here's what's gonna happen. Here's how it's gonna help you. Here's the path. Here's the map to navigate it, right? So number one, Jesus says this. Before he even starts, he says this. Verse five, see that no one leads you astray. If you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, what do you need? You need a light. The Bible says your word is a lamp unto my feet. 
the way that the Christian for 2,000 years, the way that the believer, the follower of Jesus for 2,000 years has not been led astray has been one thing, immersing themselves in Scripture. This is how we are not led astray. That we read it and we reread it. Each time it takes on new life because it's alive. It grows if you would. And the word becomes flesh and dwells in us. We read the stories of Abraham who goes through difficulty, 25 years of waiting for a promise. But he believes God and it's accounted him for righteousness and he becomes the father of faith. We read about Joseph, betrayed by 10 brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, falsely imprisoned in there, forgotten by the people that should remember him. But God did not forget him. At the end of Joseph's life, he would say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, Hebrew, raw, God has turned to good, tov, to the saving of many lives. One of the most brilliant verses in the Bible that God can take tribulations and difficulties, things that you did not cause, maybe that were done to you, God can take those and work those for good. That's how powerful God is. We read about Esther, who's in tribulation. Her entire people, the Jewish race is on the chopping block. There's legislation that's going to annihilate them as a people. And Esther stands up and says, for such a time as this. I will stand between my people and the coming wrath. Brilliant. Ruth, handful of purpose. David, the forgotten son, becomes the favorite king. Jesus, our faithful high priest. I can go on and on and on. You immerse yourself in these stories because guess what? What they went through, you and I will go through. And we get a look back and say, oh, oh. It's our job. Do you know that? As believers, we're to immerse ourselves in this book. Let me give you some Bible verses. Jeremiah chapter six, verse 16. Thus says Yahweh, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. What a brilliant verse. What's the believer supposed to do? When you're on the road, when you're trying to figure things out, what do you do? You look and you ask, God, what's the ancient path? What's the good way? And when you do that, you find shalom, rest for your very soul. The next little line, I didn't put it in, I probably should have, it says this, but they said, we will not do that. No! <laughs> right? New Testament, Romans chapter four. Verse 12 says this, talking about Abraham, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham before he was circumcised. We're supposed to know the footsteps that Abraham took, Genesis 12 through 17, before the circumcision to learn how we're to walk, or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those 
who through faith and patience inherited the promise. How do you imitate people? You gotta know what they did. You gotta be immersed in their story. That's what's being said. I got a whole bunch more. The task of the believer is to have a lamp for their feet in the valleys, in the dark times, in the tribulations, that you start to see, oh my goodness, this happened to Abraham, this happened to David, this happened to Moses, ah, this happened to Jesus. We're to ask for the ancient paths. Today, if you haven't noticed, there is a wholesale rejection of the ancient paths of the Bible. Do you know that? It's completely, it's reject this thing. We want nothing to do with it. And because of that, we have a culture now that's wandering in the wilderness. They, number one, don't know who they are. I know what I am. I am an image bearer of God Almighty. I'm an adopted son of Jesus Christ. I know exactly who I am. They don't know. So they're like, I don't know if I'm a man. I don't know if I'm a woman. I don't know if I'm a boy, a girl, a dog, a cat, a unicorn, Sasquatch. I don't know. Why? Because they've rejected the ancient paths. No, we don't want that lamp. We want to go our way. And they don't know why they're here. I know why I'm here. I'm an ambassador of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. I get to preach the gospel, the good news of King Jesus to people. I know exactly why I'm here. But most of our world does not know why they're here. Why do you think there's this massive spike then in drugs and depression and suicide right now? Because it's lost people. Psalm 1, the very first psalm, it actually sets the stage for what the psalms are going to do. Psalm 1 says this, you're either, number one, going to sit in the seat of the scoffers. Ha, ancient paths. Ah, Jesus. Ah, you're going to either sit in the seat of the scoffers, and the Bible says you're going to be like the chaff, the little funny piece that's on a piece of wheat that's blown by the wind, directionless, just all over the place. That's number one. Or number two, you're going to be one that sits and meditates on the word day and night, and you'll be like a tree planted, not moved by wind, planted by the rivers of water. You'll produce fruit in your season. Your leaf will not wither, and whatever you put your hand to, it will prosper. Which one do you want to be? Just blown all over? Each Instagram post sends you on a new kind of direction? You don't know what to, or do you want to be? I want to be a tree with roots that are strong, fruit that's good, a life that prospers. It's your choice. It's your choice. We're supposed to be in this book. It's what keeps us from being led astray. Chaff driven by the wind. So a couple, uh, well, about a year ago, I actually sat down like just time where I looked at God's word, just the immersion in God's word, and then kind of tried to apply it to Edgewater. Like, how do we as employees walk out what we're supposed to be doing at Edgewater biblically? And I came up with things I just called the 10 cultures of Edgewater. And they're based on the Bible. Like, I think the Bible is able to give you ancient paths that work, and they've worked. 
And we just went over them for 10 weeks in a row during our staff meeting. This, this. So we're going to post those one a day for the next 10 days, starting on Tuesday. Just that's how you do it. My life is being shaped by this book. And I continually want it to shape the way that I am then interacting with other people. So don't be led astray. How? Right here. Right here. Number two, endure. Verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Everyone should have that underlined. Don't be surprised when this world, when people hate you for your faith and how you walk out the ancient paths of Jesus Christ. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We're supposed to endure. How do we endure? You ever use a map app and get lost? Tells you to go the wrong way? Happened to me just a, a, a short while ago. I'm like, what in the world? I am completely lost right here, right? The only way that you're going to believe a map, the only way that you're gonna believe it is if you believe it's true. The only way you're gonna endure and trust God's word is if you believe it's true. That's the only way. And the thing that I love about scripture which you read any other religious book, it does not do this. The Bible is full of failures, you know that? Abraham fails in his faith. David fails, he becomes an adulterer and a murderer. Moses fails in his meekness, he gets really mad. Paul and Barnabas had this falling out, they get mad at each other and the dream team is split up. Judas betrays, Peter denies, right? You can just go on and on. Like the Bible is full of people that fail. There's a lot of failure in this book. Perhaps you have a friend or a family member that at one time seemed like they were enduring and they were doing well and they were okay with Christianity and now they've deconstructed their faith and they've moved away and they don't believe anymore. Like we know them. So how is it that that happens to people? I sat down on Thursday and just started writing out, why do people not endure? I came with a list. I'll give you two right now. Number one, I think here's fault number one from the church it's oversold Christianity. And this is what I mean by that. It's this idea that, hey, if you believe, your wildest dreams will come true. Like God has a great, wonderful plan for your life, right? Just sign up. God's gonna make it happen for you. So Christianity is sold like as a ticket to the Princess Cruise Line. Get on board, you're gonna be happy. And then prayer just becomes the bell you ring so that God will fetch you another pillow to make you comfortable. Right? It's nutty to me. That church, it's your way right away. So I gather literature from church. I love church. So when I travel or I go anywhere on a Sunday, I just go to church wherever it's at. And I always like grab the literature because the literature tells me something very important about that church. Right? A sermon, you know, you're doing a different one every single Sunday. But literature is you've really sat down, you've thought out, Okay, this is what we want to express to anybody coming here for the next year or whatever it is. So literature, I'm always like grabbing literature. Sometimes it's great. It inspires me and I love it. Other times it makes me cringe. So perhaps you've seen literature like this. It's come to church X 
friendly people trying to live their best lives now. I'm like, what? That's a Tony Robbins seminar. That is not Christianity, right? It's nutty to me. Come here, relevant messages. What? I don't care if it's relevant. I care if it's true, right? There are a lot of relevant morons. Watch TV, right? I don't want relevance. I want truth. So there's like, are you kidding me? See what Church X has to offer your life. Well, after reading your information, apparently nothing, right? Let me say something. Christianity is not about me. I'll repeat that. Christianity is not about me. Do you know that? Christianity is not about you. I'm going to need to do probably a sermon just on that because we have a world now that is telling every single one of us, you're the center of the universe. And then it gets kind of imported into Christianity and then Christianity becomes a way to make a better Matt Heverly. Christianity is not a way to make a better Matt Heverly. If you want to be miserable in your faith, make church and make Christianity all about you. You'll be miserable. You'll leave today and you'll be like, you know, they just weren't really nice to me today. Okay. Uh, you know, I was kind of offended by that message. Okay, welcome to the crew. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Okay, if you come here for any length of time, I will offend you. It's part of my job. Okay? You know, nobody complimented my outfit today. I'm going somewhere else. Okay, fine. Christianity is not about me. You know what Christianity is about? It's about Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's about me denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus because my way stinks. That's what it's about. That's what you can hear at Edgewater. Follow Jesus because your way stinks. You have enough education and you have enough life history to know you make a mess of it. Follow Jesus instead. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message we're gonna preach here over and over. It's the only way you will endure. Christianity is about Jesus and me denying myself and following him. And that's what I choose to do every single day. I'm not gonna oversell you Christianity. All right, mistake number two is this. There's this cultural Christianity thing where um, maybe like five or six years ago, there was all these celebrities that got saved. Remember that? And then out of that came these celebrity churches that were full of like celebrities. So Kanye, he gets saved, makes his gospel album, which I love. I think it's awesome. I'm glad these guys are getting saved, right? Matthew McConaughey, uh, Chance the Rapper, Justin Bieber, like you, know, you can't believe it. Justin Bieber saved, what in the world, right? Like God can save anybody. <laughs> he's a, he's a what is it? A believer or a believer, whatever it is. I don't even know. He's a believer. That's an amazing thing, right? This is good stuff. And these massive churches start, and then like the Kardashians are going to church because it's cool now. Wow. Listen, that's over now. Do you know that? Those giant celebrity churches are actually right now nosediving. It's gone. Now what's happened, just in about four years, is our politics, our education... Our technology 
and our culture have united together and they are force feeding America a worldview that's 180 degrees from Jesus. That's what's happened. And it's coming from every single direction. It's 180 degrees away from Jesus Christ. There's no more deny yourself. There's no more, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's now, hey, take these pills and get this nip and get this tuck and you can remake yourself in whatever fashion you want. It's the clay shaking its fist at the potter saying, why have you made me thus? And I'll remake myself in my own image. It's the ultimate idolatry. We're all our own idols now. We worship ourselves. It's the way things are now. Listen to me. I did not become a Christian because it was cool. I did not become a Christian because it was comfortable. I did not become a Christian because it was exciting or fun. I did not become a Christian to try to get a girl. I'm a Christian because it's true, period. That's how you endure. Because it's up and down with coolness. Truth stands. If you want to endure, you have to make sure you realize this is true. And I stick in God's word, here's why. It's the antidote to politics and education and culture and technology. It's the antidote to it. He keeps telling me the right ancient paths that I wanna stick to. It is the map. But Matt, it's so hard to read the Bible. I don't understand it. It's inconvenient. And I'm doing well right now. I don't really need it right now. Okay, let me give you a little illustration. This happened about 10 years ago. It was at a Harris Beach family camp. And um, I had this Tahiti that I would go, it was an inflatable Tahiti, and I would take it out and I would go fishing out at Harris Beach out in the ocean. It was before I got a hard shell. To, inflatable Tahitis are not the best thing to take out in the ocean. Just a note to you, get a hard shell, right? Because everything pops it. And, and like you pull up these spiny fish and they put a hole in it. So it's just a, it's, it's not that great. So, um, but I had an inflatable, that's all I had. And we're about ready to head over to Harris Beach when I pumped up my Tahiti and noticed it had a bunch of holes in it, probably from the last time I went fishing. So I'm like, okay. So it was late. The only place that was open was Walmart. So I went to Walmart, tried to find a patch kit. And all they had was the rubber patches. And if you know, Tahiti's are made of that vinyl material, usually vinyl stuff. Well, it said on the back of this package, will work for vinyl. So I'm like, well, okay. So I bring it home. I patch my Tahiti. I pump it up. It's holding air. Awesome. Next morning, I'm getting ready to go out. And there's a lot of stuff you have to put into uh, a Tahiti, which is not very big to go fishing. You need a box to put the fish in because if not, they just poke holes in the bottom. So you need a box to put the fish in. You got your tackle box. You got your seat to sit on. You've got the paddle. You've got your fishing rod. You got waves coming. So you got to keep it minimal. And then I had a life jacket and I have never needed a life jacket. I'd gone out and done this dozens of times. I've never needed my life jacket. And remember I was putting it all together. And I'm like, man, that life jacket is kind of inconvenient. It always falls out. I'm not, you know, you don't really wear it because it's in the way when you're trying to fish. And like, man, I don't really need it. I've never once needed my life jacket. Maybe I won't take it this time. 
And then I'm pushing it out, and then just last minute, I'm like, ah, fine, I'll take it. So I put it in. Of course, fishing is falling out. I've got to go back and get it, and it's always in the way, and there's all these problems, no doubt. And I'd paddle out about a mile. I was way out at this rock, and I was catching fish, right? And then all of a sudden, I'm pulling up this fish, and I see out of the side, bubbles. And I looked at every single Walmart patch had fallen off. <laughs> Thank you, Sam Walton, right? You know what I was really glad to have at that point? Yes, the inconvenient, hard-to-keep life jacket. I'm telling you, one day the patches will come off your life. And if you don't have a life jacket before then, you're doomed. That's why we stick with it. Okay, Lord, I know tribulation is coming. I know the valley of the shadow of death is coming. I know difficulty is ahead. So I am going to be someone, even though it's inconvenient, even though it's difficult, even though it's, I'm still gonna be somebody that stays immersed in this. I immerse myself in this because I know its ancient paths are right and this is how I endure. I may be doing well now, but I don't know what tomorrow brings. So I'm gonna stay in this book. When tribulations come, you're gonna be glad you've been in church and in, in God's word and praying and loving and giving and serving because those are the characters that endure you through difficult times. Jesus, number two, endure to the end. Number three, verse 18. For in those days, she was pray, verse 18, that it may not happen in winter. I love that. Jesus is saying, things are gonna get super, super bad. Pray that it may not happen in winter. Jesus is saying, pray that your tribulation is easier. Is he not? Is it okay to say, Jesus, this is tough. Please make it easier. Is that okay to say? Absolutely. He instructs us to do that. In the middle of your hard difficulty, pray that it doesn't happen in winter because that'll make it really super duper hard. I pray in tribulation that Jesus makes it easier. I pray that the road is easier, that the load is lighter. I have no problem praying that way. But I'm gonna tell you something. The only way you pray that way to Jesus is if you believe, if you believe he's in control. Do you believe Jesus is in control? If not, in tribulation, you'll try everything else. Whatever, every other option in the world. The only way that someone says to Jesus in the middle of their difficulty, please make this easier. The only way you do that is if you believe he is the one that's able to do it. If you believe what he says in the word, if you believe he's the map maker, if you believe his ancient paths are right, it's the only way. So maybe it's a little bit like this. A couple dads and I, we took our sons and we hiked the Pacific Crest Trail a bunch of years ago. And we did like three different years. Um, and the Pacific Crest, if you don't know, it's just a high point that goes from Mexico all the way to Canada. It's up your six, seven, 8,000 feet in the air. You're just, you know, up on top of these mountains. So you're on these ridges almost all the time. You're just hiking these ridges. Uh, guess what's really scarce up there? Besides Wi-Fi and cell signal, water. Water is the scarcest thing. 
So you have this map, and this map, it tells you where water is. And the, the first time we were hiking, there was the first water spot. It was WA1735, and it just had underneath it piped spring. So we had to actually hike off the trail down a little bit, and we find, yep, it's a black one-inch poly pipe about 50 feet long, and it was going in somewhere to spring water, I guess. The only problem was it was so dry that year, it wasn't running but there was water inside that long tube. So Sean Logue stuck his, uh, the tube for his filter way down this tube and started like uh, pumping out the water, but it reeked. Well, a frog had crawled in there and croaked. And it's black poly pipe in the sun in 100 degree weather. So he was cooked frog. It was just the grossest water in the world. So Justin Buchanan's like, no thanks, I am not drinking that. We're going to the next water spot. So um, Sean Logue's like, no problem, man. I'm filtering this. I can drink this. I'm a man. And he did. Hats off to him. Well, we walked. The next spot was where 140 and the uh, trail crossed 140. And Ranger Rick had set out some water for us. And super thankful for Ranger Rick because it was a really dry year. But he put the water in repurposed Tidy Cat Ocean Breathe kitty litter containers. (laughs) So when you drank it, it still tasted like kitty litter. I prefer the croaked frog water, right? Here's what I learned in 132.5 miles. That map tells you where water is. It has never been wrong before. And you start planning your life based on it because you gotta carry a certain amount of water. Hey, water's 10 miles away. Water's 15 miles away. So every time you're deciding how much water and water is heavy, You want one thing you don't want to carry, it's too much water. You want to run out of water the moment you hit the next water spot. I learned to trust the map maker. Listen, the only way you're going to pray, the kind of prayer that we're supposed to be praying, the only way you're going to do that is if you trust the map maker. Do you trust him? Do you trust what he says? Do you believe in him? We're going to be the kind of people that 100% trust the map maker. I'll ask you a simple question. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust his ancient paths? Do you trust that he knows how to make life work correctly? Do you trust that he knows how to get you through difficulty and tribulation? Do you trust that he can make tribulation easier? Because if you don't, you won't pray. The way that you and I are to live is to be those that believe. I think the big message of the Bible is real simple. We're to believe that God is good and generous and he wants the best for us. That's the big message of the Bible. And when you believe that God is good and generous and wants the best for you, you start to pray. You start to pray to him. As your heavenly father, you start to pray, okay? Lastly, and I was gonna do the whole message on this section because it's so amazing, but see if you can pick out The repeated words. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Some prophecy people seem to doubt that little text right there. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is one of those things that where Jesus has taken his God powers, Philippians chapter 2, 
put them in his back pocket and he's not using them anymore. It's I could call 72,000 angels right now, but I'm not going to. I could turn this rock into bread, but I'm not going to. He takes his God powers and he puts them in his back pocket and lives just like you and I live this life, 100% human. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Last point, stay awake. Jesus, over and over and over, stay awake. Why would Jesus say this over and over and over? Because life lulls us to sleep. The day, the week, the monthly grind, the next project, the new idea, it just lulls us into this sleep and we forget what actually matters. And you know what normally wakes people up? Tribulation. Difficulty, what am I doing? Why have I been living this way? Tribulation wakes us up. You gotta stay awake. How do you as a Christian, year after year, decade after decade, 50, 60 years in, how do you stay awake for that long? I think you gotta have goals. We have this crazy idea, I think, that we're not supposed to have goals. Like it's some kind of legalistic, weird trip to have goals as Christians. I say, that's ridiculous, right? It's like this. I'll give one more Pacific Crush Trail analogy. So we went three different years. Uh, The first year, Elijah, my son, was six. And that year, I carried all of our stuff. And the last leg on the last day, I carried him too. He got sick. He passed out, puked, fell asleep on the side of the trail. I'm like, okay, looks like I'm carrying you too. Next year, he was seven. He was doing a little bit stronger. He carried a little bit of his stuff. I didn't have to carry him at all. We skipped the year. The last year we did it, he was 10 years old. He carried most of his stuff. I keep telling him, the next time we go, you're carrying me. Revenge, buddy, right? So he just got stronger and stronger. So final leg we've done. It was, he's 10 years old. It was a Saturday morning. We were leaving at 6.30 in the morning and we had 18 miles to do that day. So I looked at Elijah and I said this. I said, let's set a goal. And I said this, and I don't know why I said it this way, but this is what I said. I said, we set the goal when we're strong so that when we're weak, it will carry us on. So let's set a goal right now. We're strong, we're feeling good. This is day three. We kind of worked the kinks out. Let's set a goal. How far do you want to go? How, what time should we take our first break? He kind of thought, I said, it's up to you. So he's like, hmm, let's go till 9.30. You do about three miles an hour, so if we hike for three hours, we do nine miles, we'd be halfway done for the day. I'm like, brilliant, let's do it. That is our goal, okay? You and me, goal. So we set out, we're walking. About 7.30, Elijah comes up to me, he's like, hey, uh, can we take a break? I said, bro, it's only one hour in. Remember, we set the goal when we were strong, so now that we're weak, it'll carry us on. Do you really wanna take a break now, or do you wanna keep going until 9.30? He's like, okay, let's keep going. So we keep going, comes back at eight o'clock. 
dad, my knee's starting to hurt. I'm like, bro, every single part of my body hurts. It's been hurting for three days. I haven't slept, right? Are you kidding? Yes. Do you, you want to quit? Do you want to stop now? Uh, no. Came, came at 8.30. Are you sure? No. And then 9.30, we, we finally stopped. I said, high five, bud. We're halfway done. We did nine miles before most kids your age are even awake. Good job. The only way we kept going was guess how? We set a goal when we were strong and the goal carried us on. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus, the Bible says, set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Why? Because tribulation was coming. The garden of Gethsemane, the garden of the oil press was coming where Jesus would say, let this cup pass by me. If there'd be any other way where he would sweat great drops of blood, a crushing was coming. So he had to set his face like flint. That's my goal. And nothing's gonna take me from it. Do you have goals as a Christian? Were all your goals financial? Were all your goals relational? Are all your goals cultural? Do you have goals? As a, I think as a believer, you should have a goal. This year, I'm gonna read through the Bible. This year, I'm gonna wake up. I'm gonna spend some time in God's word in the morning. We should have goals. Because guess what? You're gonna get weak. Tribulation will come. Inconvenience will come. Difficulty will come. And if you don't have goals saying, I'm going to commit to this. I'm gonna pray and ask for guidance and help. I'm gonna commit to this. Look out. But here's the ultimate goal. Here's the ultimate reason why we keep going. In verse 35, Jesus says this. The master is going to come. Do you know that Jesus is gonna return for us? He says no one knows the hour or day. I don't know the hour or day. I stopped trying to figure it out a long time ago. I quit the planning commission and I joined the welcoming party. Whenever he comes back, it will be brilliant. I don't get all anxious and worried about geopolitical stuff because I know this, my king will come back at the absolute right time in history and it's going to be brilliant. He's gonna bring with him a new heaven and a new earth. He's gonna bring with him a new body for me. You ever felt like you weren't quite at your capacity? You weren't quite doing the way you were supposed to be doing life? Everyone feels that because we're not. We lost it in Genesis 3. That's coming back. Where I will serve my king in my full capacity in a way that makes it brilliant. Life is lived rightly then. There's shalom, there's goodness, there's generosity. It's brilliant. That's coming. He's coming back for me. Praise God. So I want to be found doing when he arrives. I want goals. I want to endure. I want to keep proclaiming the gospel. I don't want to be lulled into sleep. I don't want to be crushed and conformed to this culture. And the only way I do it is by taking the wisdom of Jesus. All right, Lord. I'm going to read. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be someone that trusts that you are the good map maker. I want to be someone that looks at life always through the lens of Scripture, that it becomes my authority. I'm going to ask when I'm at crossroads for the ancient past, not the current past, not the cool past, not the awesome past. I want the ancient past because of the past that leads to life and it more abundantly. This, Mark 13, is how you endure tribulation and difficulty. And it's coming for us all at some time. So as we go to the table today, here's what I would suggest.
Maybe you're not enduring well. Maybe you're not setting goals. The Bible tells us, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. There's a time for self-examination. So recently for myself, I found like my study of scripture was too transactional. You know what I'm saying? Like It's like I'm trying to make a transaction with God. I'm gonna study your word because I'm gonna get these things from you. Like somehow I could bang the God genie if I did it right and he'd give me my three wishes. And it started to grieve my heart because he's my heavenly father. It's supposed to be relational. And so I changed up how I started doing things. I'm always in the Bible, I'm reading numbers. But I started praying the Psalms. It started in Psalm 1. Not trying to get something from God. Not a transaction with God. But just saying, God, I want to spend time with you. You're my heavenly father. Jesus, you're my elder brother, my savior, my lord, my king. I don't want a transaction with you. I don't want that relationship. Who, who wants their son to treat them that way? The only time your son comes to you is to get something from you. That's not healthy. So I had to change it up for me. I had to confess that. Right, I want that. I don't want that. That's doing something to my soul that I don't like. And so examine yourself. Jesus, today, we want to endure well. We want the antidote to our culture and technology and politics. And you're it. We want to follow those ancient paths. We want to trust you more today than we did yesterday. We want to set godly goals like Caleb who said, I want to make it to the promised land. And they made it to the promised land. I want the mountain with the giant on it at 84. Never stop setting goals that we set our faces true north toward you. Trusting. So we have great intentions today. Pray as we eat, you would empower us to carry them out. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup. The cup, yes, of cleansing, but also the cup that you will say, you will not drink of this cup again until you come in the new kingdom. That we drink this in hopeful anticipation of the return of the king. When all tribulations are gone, where death is wiped out, where disease is gone, where every tear is wiped away, where we live to our capacity the way we were designed. May that be the hope that's the anchor of our souls. Let's drink together. Amen. So we offer prayer up here. Maybe there's an area where you feel like you're getting weak. Maybe you're in tribulation. That seems like it's overwhelming to you. Come be prayed for. 
Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says there can be a, a bearing of one another's burdens in that moment. Where somehow in prayer, the load is shifted, it's shared. Come be prayed for. We offer baptism. Roger's right back here. If you want to be baptized today, talk to Roger. He'll explain it for you. Would you stand for this final song?